0: Welcome to the Synergy Lecture Series. My name is Catherine Sanger. I'm the head of the Science and Engineering Library. And uh, the Synergy Lecture Series was created to highlight uh, teaching, research, and grants in science and engineering here at UCSC with a view toward their impact on society. Additionally, the series is intended to raise awareness of UCSC scientific research throughout the UCSC community. As always, an event like this requires the assistance of many people, and I'd like to just take a small moment to thank some of them, um, Vince Navoa, Sandy Schmidt, Molly Ostrander, Kristen Hightower, Weiwei, Bryn Kinnar, and Ferry, thank you very much for all of your help. So today we're delighted to have Professor Glenn Millhauser as our guest speaker. He's the second speaker in our series. Oh, and the series is um, once a quarter, so be uh, on the lookout for our advertisements. We also have a web page, uh, so and, which is connected to our science library homepage, and we're happy to have you take a look at who's been our past speakers and who will be our future. Um, and we are audio streaming this uh, presentation, so you can also look for that. Um, Professor Milhouser has an excellent reputation as a teacher. As early as 1980, during his first years in graduate school at Cornell, he was twice awarded the Dupont Teaching Award for outstanding t- teaching assistant and more recently, in 2002, he was recognized with the UCSC Excellence in Teaching Award. However, my own experience with Professor Milhouser's teaching, I think, is much more telling. A few years ago, I did decide to audit the Chem 1A course, and of course, Professor Milhouser was teaching, and uh, I was really surprised at how the undergraduate students would rush to that class. They would get there early, and they would try to get the front row seats. And I found this pretty amazing, considering those undergraduate students in Chem 1A. But after sitting through a few lectures, I began to understand why they were doing this. And that's because, of course, there were experiments to be seen at every lecture that had something to do with the lecture to follow. So as, after I introduced myself, um, Glenn began to look for my reaction in the audience to see how his lectures were going across. And he would say, OK, is everyone getting this now? And then he would look directly at me. And I would say, Laura. And then he would proceed, you see because I think he figured, you know, the librarian can get it. Surely, the undergraduate students were getting the concept And so after every class, I would go home and I would tell my lovely family, who of course listened dearly to me, and I talked about the chemistry that I'd learned and the exciting experiments I had seen, and I think even secondhand that those stories inspired my stepdaughter's interest in science. So I finished the class and had a, a much more updated view of chemistry. I learned about UCSC teaching. And of course, I jumped the chance to invite Glenn to speak with us today. So as for Professor Milhauser's background, he received his bachelor's degree in chemistry from CSU Los Angeles, a master's in chemistry, and a PhD in physical chemistry from Cornell. After serving as a postdoctoral fellow in the department of pharmacology at Cornell, Professor Milhauser began his career here at UCSC. As a testimony to his success in research, during the past five years, Professor Milhauser has participated in the acquisition of over $2 million in grants from such agencies as the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. We are honored to have such an accomplished scientist and teacher speak with us today. Please join me in welcoming Professor Glenn Millhouser.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Um, I kind of wish I knew where that $2 million went. It, go- it goes quickly. Um, I also wish I brought something to blow up, because that's one of the differences. You know, when you teach intro chemistry, you can explode lots of things and, and always somehow relate it to what you're teaching, even if it doesn't really relate. It just, uh, you know, it's just good to do that. So, so first of all, let me ask, can everybody um, hear me okay? I tend to move around when I talk, but I, I think this microphone should pick up all right. So I'm going to talk about a collection of very, very unusual diseases today uh, called uh, the prion diseases. And... Um, Mad cow disease is one of them. And I'm going to take you through a little bit of history. And since this is a general talk for general public, I'm not going to assume too much chemistry. But in the middle, I would like to show you some of the chemical details of how we do things and uh, what we've been learning uh, about these diseases from a chemical perspective and something about the research that's going on here at UCSC. So um, really an understanding of prion diseases or the modern world of these diseases really starts with a disease called Kuru absolutely horrible neurodegenerative disease. The folks that suffered from this disease was really uh, uh, located uniquely in in the area of tribal New Guinea, uh, suffered by a group of people called the 4A tribal people. And here you see, if my pointer is working, here's a mom holding her child. And this picture was taken back in like 1950s, 1960s, something like that. And the way Kuru develops is that it starts off with basically a loss of coordination, difficulty in walking. Eventually one loses the use of the extremities. One of the kind of weird manifestations is actually the facial muscles tend to pull back, leaving the victim's teeth exposed. And they tend to make these sort of cackling sounds. I think it's kind of a neurological aberration. And so the Australians being close to to this part of the world refer to this as the laughing death. Nobody ever recovers from Kuru. It's an absolutely fatal disease. The time it takes from beginning to end can be anywhere from, from weeks to months to maybe a couple of years. Uh, it ultimately, the way it kills its victims is it ultimately leads to total loss of coordination, oftentimes dementia, loss of cognitive properties, and then eventually the victims l- lose the ability to, um, to swallow, to coordinate their lungs, to breathe, and they either asphyxiate or they starve. And it is not only always fatal, but it is an absolutely horrible way to go. Now, there's an interesting uh, feature of the, uh, uh, the 4A people. And that is, back in these times, and they no longer practice this, but back in these times they were cannibals Uh, in the sense that what they would do, now it's kind of like, as as you read about this stuff, you realize it's not like how you see in, I don't know, Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, you know, cartoons where they're throwing each other in pots and stuff like that. This was actually referred to as a mortuary feast. And what they would do is these were very, very poor people, okay, a very agricultural type of society. They had a hard time getting good sources of protein. And so when a family member or a relative passed on, they would actually consume the body. It was a good source of protein. It was also felt as a way of sort of keeping that deceased loved one alive within them. And so they would carry out these mortuary feasts. Now I won't get too graphic, but I'll show you some references at the end of the talk where if you want to see all the gory details, you can dig into it on your own. But suffice to say, it was also a very sexist society in the sense that basically men called the shots. So what the men would do is when a mortuary feast began is they would come in and they would make their choice as to what cuts, literally, that they wanted. Okay? And truthfully, again, not to get too gruesome, but they made the same choice that we do when we go to the supermarket. They would choose muscle cuts. And so what would happen is uh, the women and the children were left with all of the other stuff, okay? the organs, the brain, the spinal column, that sort of thing. And interestingly, Kuru was suffered mainly by women and children. So a fellow named Carlton Gaitashek was an absolutely brilliant physician, and he's shown right here, looking at a Kuru victim lying on the ground, reasoned that this must be some sort of infectious disease. And he argued that it was actually the tribal cannibalism that was causing the disease to be passed from, you know, the deceased body, the, 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 an individual that had died from Kuru, onto the people consuming the tissue. And, of course, since it was mainly women and children and they were getting the leftover tissues, he reasoned that, of course, it must be in those leftover tissues and pr- principally in the brain there must be some infectious component in the brain that was causing these diseases. Ultimately, as far as the, the 4A people go, uh, Gaitishek, but also missionaries, went and lived among them and argued and, and convinced them to stop practicing cannibalism. Um, and apparently, it's, the cannibalism has all been completely eliminated at this point. Fortunately, Kuru among them is also almost completely eliminated. There are still a handful of people alive among the tribes that were that, that participated in the feast many decades back. This all ended back in the 1960s. And there's still a good source of in, you know, um, uh, information in terms of uh, you know, anthropological aspects as well as medical aspects. And this continues to be research. So Deshek, uh not only identified what he thought was the source of the disease, but he also carried out a number of very, very important studies looking at the tissues of people who had died from Kuru. And so what you see here is a normal uh, brain slice stained with, you know, something that lights up the different cells and that sort of thing. And with a different stain, making it orange, you see a brain slice from a Kuru sufferer. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here that show up. and There's a couple of interesting things that are missing, okay? Now, first of all, the two things that are there that are really a hallmark that make this very interesting, one is totally uh, apparent when you look at this. You can see that there's all these little voids, these little holes. Literally, this disease turns the brain to sponge. Okay? So these are now called spongiform encephalo- encephalopathies, or since they're transmissible, they're infectious, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, which is a nice mouthful, You know, good medical word. But basically, all it means is infectious disease that turns your brain to sponge. Okay? And you contract all this together, and they're referred to as the TSEs. Okay? So TSEs is, is what these ver- diseases are called. What's also in the brain slice that is not obvious from looking here are aggregates of protein. And I'll be talking more about protein in a, li- in a little while. But there were these large clumps of protein that always seemed to be characteristic, and they would stain a certain way, and they routinely showed up in these slices. Now, what was missing is what we would all expect to be there. If this is an infectious disease, whenever we think of infection, infection's been in the news lately, right? We can't get flu shots, okay, unless you're in, a, in, a, in a, um, a group that absolutely needs it for health reasons. We always worry about infectious disease. When it comes to the flu, of course, what we're worried about is a virus, right? Well, there's two principal means of infection. There's bacteria and there's virus. And a couple of things go along with these. Number one, they have a genome okay basically they carry their genes either as DNA or in, in some cases in some viruses and RNA but there's something there with the gene okay number one number two you would expect to see typically as we all experience when you're infected you get inflammation okay there was no evidence of any inflammation in any of the brain tissue and Gar, you know, was concerned about this. You know, why aren't we seeing inflammation if we've got an infectious disease? And so he would also take the brain tissue and try to culture it, see if he could grow the virus or the bacteria in media, okay, outside of the brain. And he never succeeded in doing that. So it appeared that there was something being carried along in the brain that was transmitting this disease but somehow did not have a virus or a bacterium. These diseases exist today. Uh, you've probably uh, heard of many different forms that they come in. And in each species, to keep it maximally confusing, in every species it has a different name. Uh, In goats and sheep, it's called Scrapie. And their neurological manifestation is they literally, they itch all the time, uh, sheep in particular. And so what they do is they'll rub up against posts to the point where it literally scrapes their coats off, and hence the name Scrapie. Uh, Well-known case, and in fact the title of the talk, mad cow disease. Okay, And this is something I'll say a little bit more about in a minute. Their neurological manifestation is, if you can imagine, they become aggressive, okay? You know, you walk by, you know, a field where there's cows and are standing or chewing, right? And that's all they ever do. These guys would actually charge. Uh, they would lose coordination. They always uh, ultimately die. All these diseases, just like with uh, with the 4A people in Kuru, all these diseases are always uh, completely fatal. And so they're, they took on these sort of weird uh, neurological manifestations of becoming very, very aggressive, and hence the name mad cow disease. So... Many of you have probably heard about mad cow disease, and I'll say a little bit about it. This was an absolutely horrible scourge on agriculture in the United Kingdom back about 10, 15 years ago. And so you probably, many of you know, that back in the uh, mid-1980s, uh, actually, there, we once started seeing more and more and more mad cow disease developing. Uh, at its height, there were literally uh, 30 to 40,000 cases diagnosed per year. To get rid of the disease, because it was infectious, because it is infectious, this required that the, you, the, the government, the British government, literally uh, decimate and eliminate uh, hundreds of thousands of animals, Okay, completely taking over farms and killing all the animals, burning the carcasses and burying what was left over. Um, it hit a peak, as I say, around the mid-1990s and eventually died off. Now, getting back to what causes these diseases, as I was saying, basically there's no virus, there's no bacterium, but there is protein. Okay? So it suggests that the protein is actually what's carrying the disease. And indeed, with a little bit of protein chemistry, and anybody who's taken Chem 200B uh, knows some of these arguments, there's different ways of sort of, in a sense, inactivating proteins. So the reason, or at least, nobody's quite sure how mad cow disease came about and why it took over so many farms as it did in the United Kingdom. But the theory is this. Okay? So when you render, when you slaughter an animal, and again it starts getting a little bit graphic, but when an animal is slaughtered for meat, for, for food, only about, you know, something like two thirds to three quarters of the material is actually the kind of stuff you'll ever find in your supermarket. The rest of the stuff, spleen, kidneys, or, you know, various organs, and again, brain, spinal column, that sort of thing, those are called, those are the extra parts, okay, and those are called awful, okay, and not awful with an A, but awful with an O, okay, it's just the name of what they are. And it's actually spelled out for you somewhere over your specified uh, awful uh, products. But um, these tissues still carried a lot of valuable stuff. And, and somehow, you know, when these animals are slaughtered, you have to get rid of this stuff. So what they would do is they would actually break it down. And in addition, the cows needed a source of protein in their feed. So what they would actually do is they would force the cows, and this will sound familiar, they would force the cows to be cannibals. They would take bovine tissue that they could not sell, they would break it down, render it as it's called, okay, pack it up and, and somehow process it into feed and feed it back to cows. Not only that, they not only felt fed cows back to cows but they would also take deceased sheep and any other barnyard animals they can get and also feed them back. Okay? And since sheep have scrapie it's thought that perhaps the scrapie got into the cow feed and that is how the, the mad cow you know, outbreak began. There's actually an interesting additional feature and uh, this practice has been going on long before the outbreak of mad cow disease. And it turns out that there are, you know, depending on you know, the, the needs, there's a requirement for different parts of the tissues. And there's a certain part that when you render the tissue, uh, if you can extract the fats, you can produce a material called tallow, which is often used in making candles and this sort of thing. And so they would use an organic solvent to do this. And the tallow market, who would ever think about these things? But the tallow market crashed, okay, around this time. And so they stopped treating the bovine and sheep offals with these organic solvents. And it's thought that the organic solvents helped break down whatever this protein that was causing this disease was doing. And when they stopped using the organic solvents, that led the scrapy, the mad cow agent, to stay alive. It went into the feed and caused this outbreak. Now, we still worry about this a lot. Now in humans, there's a human disease. Actually, there's, there's a number of human diseases that are just like this. I mentioned Kuru. The most common one in Western society is called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and I'll say more about this in a little, in a little while. Creutzfeldt and Jakob, those two guys that, were, that it's named after, were actually contemporaries of Alzheimer. They were all physicians back about 100 years ago, And like Alzheimer noticed plaques in Alzheimer brains and hence the disease being named after him, Creutzfeldt and Jakob also noticed interesting plaques in certain disease tissues that they, that that they were studying. So nowadays, prion diseases among what, in Western society are typically referred to as, as I say, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or CJD. CJD, fortunately, is very, very rare. It occurs about, about one in a million deaths. Uh, that number is pretty stable, as far as anybody knows, but there's some controversy about that, and we can talk about it later. But, of course, the big concern is if mad cow tissue gets into the human food chain or in, the, in various other aspects of where we get products, whether it's blood products or, or tissue grafts or, or whatever, okay, uh, that if this gets into humans, that somehow this can cause the disease through an infectious route, okay? The one in a million deaths are usually not through an infectious route. It's what's called sporadic CJD. And indeed, this mad cow tissue that peaked right around here around 1990 and came back down led to what's now called variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob d- disease, or so-called VCJD, and about, so integrated under this curve, about 150 to 200 deaths so far. What distinguishes VCJD, so CJD, like Alzheimer's disease, is typically a disease of the aged. Okay, it typically comes in 70 to 80 years of age. VCJD uh, was striking people as young as teenagers. Absolutely horrible. These, these folks would lose their cognitive abilities. They would become incredibly forgetful. They would lose coordination, and they would die very much like Kuru people die. Yet, it, and it's absolutely horrible, parents had to watch their teenage children suffer through this disease and ultimately die. So... This is fortunately turning around. Back about 10 years ago, or not even 10 years ago, six, seven years ago, nobody had any idea whether this curve would just continue on and up and up and up. And there were predictions that one was gonna see literally hundreds of thousands of human deaths because of the passage of the tainted cow tissue into the human food chain. Fortunately, and with very, very good fortune, this has now dropped off. However, there may be, and this is of current concern, there may be an echo of this because there's a period of time that these folks were not diagnosed, with VCJD. They were asymptomatic. They were living the lives that you and I live. They were donating blood to blood banks, this sort of thing. This blood was being, you know, transgiven to other people that needed it. And so there may be an echo that's predicted to be about 12 years out, and nobody knows at this time whether this is going to take place. Now. This is, These diseases are constantly in the news, which is actually, from my perspective, as one who works on this stuff, is kind of makes it interesting and uh, fun. I'll put fun in quotes, okay, because often these things are very scary. So this was just in CNN. This was just a couple of days ago, about two or three weeks ago, I guess. Um, so now, one of the things you worry about, okay, so CG, CJD happens, right? And it's a neurological disease. If a person with CJD and they're pre-symptomatic goes in for neurosurgery, and since this is an infectious disease if instruments are used on them, okay? And if this is a protein, and I'll say more about what this protein is, not a virus virus or a bacterium, you cannot kill it. The normal way of carrying out surgery is one uses instruments in surgery, and then those instruments are put into an autoclave. And an autoclave just basically is heat and steam, okay? It's basically steam things at very, very high temperature. It turns out because this is not a virus or a bacterium, normal autoclaving does not kill the agent, okay? And so it's now well known, it should be well known, in the neurosurgery theater that you do not reuse instruments, okay? You use either disposable instruments or you take extreme measures in making sure that your instruments are absolutely cleared of any infectious material, and that involves going beyond autoclaving, actually using very, very high pressures and very, very high temperatures or chemical agents, and that will work. Well, at all places, and so what I've often mentioned when I've talked about this stuff is if... if, if one is going in for neurosurgery it makes good sense to go to major hospitals because smaller hospitals are often not aware of this. Well, of all things at Emory University, one of the leading medical schools in the country, actually performed surgery on on an individual that turned out to have CJD and those instruments were then not properly cleansed and were used on approximately ninety-eight people and so they're now in the process of notifying those ninety-eight people. The, the spokesperson of the hospital said that they think there's a very remote chance of these people getting the disease. Um, I would argue, and I certainly hope that's the case, but I would argue that if the person was operated on actually had CJD and these instruments were autoclaved in the normal fashion, I think there's actually a very good likelihood that these unfortunate folks will get CJD. But let's, let's hope this is not the case. Okay. Believe it or not, the most prevalent form of prion diseases, of these diseases that we have in the United States, is called chronic wasting disease. This is a little trivia question. Uh, It's of deer and elk. So their neurological manifestation is they just become really apathetic, and they drool, and they stop eating, and they just literally waste away. Okay, But chronic wasting disease is yet another one of these diseases mediated by this protein agent. Um, It is literally taking over animals in the wild throughout the Midwest of both the United States and Canada and there's concern that upwards of 20 to 30 percent of animals in the wild will have this disease. They cannot get rid of it. If they kill all the animals that have this disease and clear out areas where the disease was present and keep those area free of deer and elk literally for a period of years and reintroduce healthy animals, the animals get the disease. So somehow the agent is not only transmissible, but it doesn't even have to say in an animal host. It can somehow be in the soil or in the environment in, through ways that are totally unknown at this point. So this is a major uh, concern, wildlife concern. Okay, so if this is mediated by a protein, Okay, and, and it is. all right. It's not a virus. It's not a bacterium. You would think that this protein is going to be incredibly unusual. This is what it looks like. This is now called the prion protein. This is a protein. Prion was named by a guy named Stan Prusner, absolutely brilliant physicians up at UCSF. Uh, Prusner won the Nobel Prize for this work in physiology, physiology or medicine back in 1997. And part of uh, his seminal studies was he, along with his collaborators, not only identified the protein, they found the gene, they found the protein, they also determined the structure of the protein. This is the protein here, and this is actually a protein that we all have. Everybody sitting in this room has this protein in them. It is found primarily in the brain and in the spinal column and neurological tissue, but it's also found in muscle, it's found in the extremities, it's found in the endothelial tissue, it's found throughout the body, okay? Now, looking at this protein, I should say a little bit, you know, something about this. First of all, from a protein chemist's perspective, when you saw this protein, given that this is now carrying an infectious disease, and no other protein is known to do this, you expect to see something really, really unusual okay, with this protein. This is a totally vanilla protein. There's absolutely nothing stunning about this thing. The structures that we see here are really, really typical of what one finds in proteins. And so let me explain for those of you that are not used to looking at these little curly hue diagrams what it is you're seeing. So proteins... Are made up of strings of amino acids, okay, linked together. And if you go to a health food store, you can see a lot of these on the shelf because people like to take them as supplements. There's lysine, there's tryptophan, stuff like that. Those are all amino acids. They're, in mammals, there's uh, typically 20 different kinds and they're linked together to form a polymer. Now if you show, now a protein like this has about, this is about 100 amino acids. If we actually show you all the detail with every atom of every amino acid all packed together, it'll just look like one big spherical glop okay? It will convey absolutely no information whatsoever. So protein chemists are really good at figuring out um, sort of cool ways to represent their structure to convey information that's relevant. So what's done here is that one traces only the connectivity from one amino acid to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, okay? That's what we call the backbone. And so this is a backbone trace. And what you see are two types of structures showing up. Number one, these curly cues that are called helices, these are called alpha helices, and actually, believe it or not, Linus Pauling was the first one to, to, to predict this type of structure. And so it has one, two, three helices, very, very typical. And these little teal guys over here, these are called beta strands. And beta strands, alpha helices, packed together this way is really quite typical. Now, the way, nobody quite knows how this protein carries an infectious disease. But here's the current theory, and I'm going to show you sort of a little step-by-step. I wouldn't call it a movie. It's not nearly that sophisticated. But it's believed that the prion protein has two different structures. And what I showed you is the structure, at least the anticipated structure, of what's called the cellular form. Okay, This is the form that we all have. And so if you're getting a little edgy in your seat, okay, again, don't worry about it. These diseases are one in a million. Okay, Very, very rare. So we all have, you can rest comfortably, we all have the cellular form of the prion protein. The other form, that's designated PRPC. The other form that causes disease is called PRP scrapie. So even though it causes mad cow disease, Creutzfeldt disease, chronic wasting disease, you don't name it different things, you just call it PRP scrapie. So this is PRP scrapie. And it's thought what happens is somehow that the PRP scrapie agent, when it gets into a healthy system or just by poor luck, okay, or genetic predisposition, one of the PRPCs converts over, you know, randomly to a PRP scrapie. When this comes into the healthy system, it comes up and it docks against one of the healthy PRPCs. And somehow, via a mechanism, and that, that I will tell you right now, nobody understands, nobody knows any molecular details of this process. It's all very descriptive at this point, but somehow it converts that guy to switch over. Okay? And now you've got two of them, and they don't switch back. And so now you've upped the concentration. So this docks against another one, and they switch over. And you build up, and you build up, and you build up. And this is a process that we refer to in chemistry as autocatalysis. Okay, basically, the species is producing copies of itself through this type of chemical reaction. And of course, this is very schematic, but it stresses the cell, breaks up the cell. And what you have behind, and this makes sense with regard to the spongiform degeneration, is a dead cell, so a void in the brain, and an accumulation of this so-called misfolded protein. Now, with a little bit more sophistication, this is roughly, uh, and again, very, very schematic, what one thinks is going on in the brain. So once again, you have PRPC and PRP scrapie, and PRPC is found. Okay, so this is meant to represent the surface of a nerve cell in the brain, let's say. And so PRPC is not just a protein that's floating around. It's actually tethered to the surface of nerve cells or any cell that that, that produces it. So here it's found on the surface of the cell, and if you look at just the blue guys, it sort of sits on the cell, and the cycle time is something like six to nine hours, meaning what happens is that it sits on the cell, and it comes in, and it's brought into a thing called an endosome, and oftentimes these guys are brought down a pathway that breaks down the protein, oftentimes it's recycled back to the membrane, and this process takes place over a period. I think the breakdown takes place over hours, this, place, this process takes place over minutes or, or probably less than an hour. But the protein is constantly being moved through the cell, either to be recycled back to the, to the cell surface or to be broken down. Now when you get the scrapey form, it's found in a number of different ways. Number one, it can be found just by itself or as we refer to in sort of a monomeric. It's probably not monomeric. Monomeric meaning just a unit protein. It's usually found as little aggregates. It can form together as fibrils and it can also come together as plaques. And these are referred to as amyloid-like plaques. And if this sounds familiar, for those of you that have interest in Alzheimer's disease, In fact, these plaques are very, very similar at sort of a gross level. It is also a protein aggregate. And in fact, the prion diseases is one of a family of diseases that encompasses Huntington's disease, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. All of these diseases involve a normal protein that we produce, that somehow starts to aggregate in the brain and when it starts to aggregate and forms these ultrastructures, these these fibrils and just now we're starting to understand, when I say we the global field, starting to understand what these, what these plaques actually look like. But these plaques forming and, and leading to neur- neuronal stress and neuronal death is common to all of these diseases. Now, as I say, nothing is really known in detail about the scrapie form, but really, really nice work out of, again, out of Prusner's lab by Holger Ville Uh, with low resin electron diffraction work has now suggested perhaps that this is the structure of the scrapey form of the protein. And basically what happens is you've got two long helices, this one and this one over here in PRPC and they're preserved. They stay in their helical state. But this helix up here and these two strands somehow reform and form this little twisty guy over here that's called a beta helix. And somehow that beta helix transmits the information to convert other healthy forms over to this form. But again, this is all work in progress, and nobody is quite sure. Now, I showed you the, what's often been thought of as, in a sense, the business end of the protein, okay? The part of the protein that undergoes the most folding. But I actually only showed you half the protein. The full-length protein is actually shown right here. And don't worry about how one obtains these data, but this is the folded region up here. And here's this region of the protein that's actually totally unfolded. So the prion protein is not 100 amino acids long, it's actually 200 amino acids long. Half of it is structured, like I showed you, and indeed the region that undergoes the big conformational, as one says, the the change in going to the scrapey form, is located up here. But it's got all this other stuff. Now protein chemists, for many, many years, when they look for function in a protein, they look for structure. Okay? And when one sees a region of a protein that's unstructured, you think, "Ah, it's just junk. Okay, It's just been carried along, but for no reason that anybody should probably be terribly uh, concerned about. Well it turns out with the prion protein that's not the case. Okay, And in fact, and this comes through what one often says in these types of studies, one looks for a conserved region. If you find a region of a protein that is preserved, okay, if one believes we come from a common species, then things that are important are preserved through evolution, meaning that all species carry roughly the same protein sequence through that region this unstructured region of the protein, so this is the folded end, this is the unfolded end down here, this unfolded region is actually the most conserved region of the prion protein. So it must be doing something. And in fact, and so what I'm showing you down here, and the chemists will recognize this, and so will the biologists, of course, but this is now the single letter code for the amino acids. And if you don't know this stuff, don't worry about it, okay? Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail. But I want to point you to this right here. So what these single letters are P is proline, H histamine, glycine, 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 tryptophan, glycine, glutamine. Okay? This unusual eight amino acid stretch uh, is propagated and copied three, four, or five times in every version of the prion protein. So this is referred to as the octa-repeat domain, so octa for eight amino acids, repeat, because we all have four to five copies. Cows have five, humans have four or five. Interestingly, it's very, very rare, but there's a number of families in the United Kingdom that have up to 15 copies of this, and they are very likely to get Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. They are much more susceptible to it than uh, than the population at large. The reason this this portion of the protein is so flexible now becomes very, very clear when looking at the sequence, and it's because of these Gs. Glycines, in particular, and I won't go into all the details why, but glycines, in particular, allow proteins to be flexible. They do not take on a lot of structure. So, um, to my mind, so I mentioned before the connection to Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Parkinson's disease, and to my mind, this raises three fundamental questions. I always think of this as my three fundamental questions, okay? So, as I said before, in all these diseases... We have a protein in our body that undergoes a transition. It starts to form an aggregate and somehow cells that are in the vicinity of that, that aggregate start to die. So the questions, as I always phrase it, is number one, what is the mechanism of deposition? Okay. In other words, why does at some point in one's life does a healthy protein all of a sudden convert, take on a different shape, and start to aggregate and deposit and form these fibrils? Okay, number one. Number two, why is the deposit cytotoxic? Our bodies are chock full of protein. These proteins have all kinds of different structures. The only difference with these guys is that they're aggregated. But somehow that aggregate is toxic, and it starts killing nearby um, nearby nerve cells. Why is that the case? And finally, and I find this really stunning, what is the function of the precursor protein? So in other words, Alzheimer's disease is caused primarily by a peptide called the A-beta peptide. Parkinson's disease is caused or at least linked primarily to a protein called alpha-synuclein, which my colleague Tony Fink studies in his lab. Uh, The prion diseases is related to the prion protein. In In those three cases, the function of that protein in the healthy brain is not known. We don't know what it does. And it stands to reason that perhaps maybe it's not the aggregates themselves, but maybe it's the loss of that normal protein function that's actually causing the disease or at least contributing to the cell stress. It's not clear. But very very exciting work in the last few years uh, now links the prion protein to copper binding. Now I never appreciated this before I got into this business, but it turns out the brain is absolutely chock full of copper. Okay. Uh, now I'll put it in concentration units, but basically the the, the wet weight—if you take you know a little bit of brain tissue and you determine the concentration of copper in that wet weight, in that in that wet you know you know piece of tissue—it's about eighty micromolar. Okay. To a chemist, that is a lot of copper, okay? It rivals the concentration of magnesium. The big difference, now magnesium is a very, very common so-called divalent. We say divalent, what we mean is a doubly charged species. Calcium, magnesium, copper, these are all divalent ions. Very, very common throughout the body found at, you know, at least magnesium and calcium are found at very, very high concentrations. Magnesium is, as we say, redox inactive, okay? It's just hanging out. Okay? It will bind to things, but it won't take electrons, it won't give up electrons, it will not participate in any detailed chemistry okay, to a first approximation. Copper, quite the contrary, okay? it is happy to take up an electron and give that electron back again. This is called redox chemistry. Okay? It participates in electrochemical reactions. And indeed, just the fact that we're breathing right now, we're depending on copper-dependent enzymes uh, to to be able to uh, to allow for the electron transport for this to happen. So the brain is absolutely loaded with copper. Interestingly enough, it does not. Our brain does not exchange copper. Our bodies do not exchange uh, brain copper with dietary sources. If neonate animals are raised on copper-depleted diets so that their brain copper content is low. And then they are fed a diet that's very, very rich in copper. They actually will not regenerate the copper in the brain. So the general thinking is that in fact that the brain not only has an enormous amount of copper and obviously must need this copper, okay, but also it preserves it. It stores it. It keeps it in all the right places. You know, it, it's very, very careful in terms of, and this is how chemists speaking, of course, but it's very careful in how it handles all the copper. Now, I should mention copper, as essential as it is for life, okay, and it, as I say, it is found in all e- eukaryotic cells. It's also very, very toxic, and as one says, it's very cytotoxic. At high concentrations, it will readily kill cells. It will certainly stress them. Now, this opens up a whole bunch of exciting possibilities, because as I was saying, we don't know what the function of the prion protein is. But now that it's clear that it's a copper binding protein, one can start speculating about what it's doing in the healthy brain. And if we know what it's doing in the healthy brain, maybe we can figure out what function is lost in the disease brain and we'll get some insight into how these diseases develop. So there's a whole bunch of ideas out there. Is it an SOD, so this this is an abbreviation for a superoxide dismutase, okay? This is an enzyme that's found in many, many tissues throughout the body that's involved in a type of detoxification and oftentimes, actually it always takes advantage of a metal ion like a copper or a manganese in, in the enzyme itself, and so it was thought, and there's a vast literature on this with the prion protein, that indeed this is somehow to, some sort of superoxide dismutase functioning in the brain involved in t- detoxification. It could be something that just sops up extra copper, what one would refer to in chemistry as a copper buffer. Or um, it might be some sort of transporter involved in transmitting or transporting copper from one region outside of a cell, inside of a cell, vice versa. So uh, how does one look at this? So I don't know if is here but I could embarrass her. She's not here. Yeah, she knew I was going to show this. Okay. So we became very, very interested in this problem. And actually, what, the way this came about, and the way science often goes, you know, is that I was actually up at UCSF, and this was back in the mid-90s, and I was up there giving a talk. And I was talking with a fellow named Fred Cohen, who's, who works very, very closely with Stan Prusner. And Fred said, you know, we just realized that the prion protein, there's a lot of evidence coming out that the prion protein is a copper binding protein. Now, my background actually, so Catherine mentioned that I, I uh, did my graduate work in physical chemistry, and I love to torment people with physical chemistry as some people in the audience know. Um, uh, my background in physical chemistry is actually in magnetic resonance, and in, principle, and in particular, a field called electron spin resonance. And so copper is actually absolutely ideal for studying by these techniques. So copper, that electron that it can give up, you know, or that it can take in and give up again, Uh, Actually, when it's in the state where it doesn't have the electron, it has one single electron that's not paired up with any others, and we can detect it with an instrument that we have here at UCSC called, called an Electron Spin Resonance Spectrometer. And again, I won't go into all the details, but basically this is the spectrometer over here, and this is a big electromagnet. We put our sample down over there, and by applying microwaves, we can look at what's referred to as the spin transition. And that spin transition in that copper center tells us an enormous amount about what that copper center is actually seeing in terms of polypeptide and protein around it. So let me bring in one more picture, and I think some of these folks might be around. We we have a bunch of different instruments around the lab. So this is a mass spectrometer. This is how we verify that our molecules are the molecules that we actually want. And so this is, um, Catherine mentioned, research and, and people being involved at all different levels. Madri is a graduate student who will be finishing in the next year. Dustin here is an undergraduate student who's been contributing wonderfully to our laboratory. He's now applying for medical school and, and apparently doing quite well getting interviews. Uh, Eric Walter back here is kind of hidden behind this monitor as a postdoctoral researcher who received his PhD at Montana State and is an expert at EPR and has been uh, essential for, for our latest uh, generation of studies. So what we've done, I want to take in, we're, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I'll go quickly through some of the data. But the question becomes, The way we approach this, okay, and this is very, very common in so-called modern structural biology, is if you've got, you know, a protein or a nucleic acid and you're not quite sure of what the function is, one way of narrowing in on the function is is to determine the structure. Figure out chemically what it looks like and in doing so it will tell you an enormous amount, okay, about what function it can carry out and perhaps what function it cannot carry out. And so using EPR techniques. We were able to show that within the octropeat domain, that's where most of the copper binding is, it's actually these residues, HGGGW, that are involved in copper binding. Most of the copper is taken up there. And if you now expand this out, and again I won't uh, drive you guys crazy with too many chemical structures here, but H, this is the actual bond line structure, so of course Catherine knows this from Chem 1A, and she can tell you all the features of, of this molecule. Um, but this is the histidine, this is the H-glycine, glycine, glycine, tryptophan, okay? And one of the things that we know from the EPR is that there are three nitrogens from this guy, the nitrogens are the ends, there's three nitrogens binding to that copper, Okay, now you look at this thing and you count a whole bunch of nitrogens. it's a friggin' mess, okay? How are you gonna find out which nitrogen's actually bind? Well, it turns out that the EPR is absolutely wonderful for doing this. So we do a whole bunch of things. We make peptides, we use isotopic labeling, we use different magnetic resonance techniques, and I'll take you very quickly through a couple of them. This is actually done in collaboration with Gary Gerfin's lab at the Einstein Medical School in the Bronx, in New York, and this is a technique called, this is a real mouthful, electron spin echo envelope modulation, so everybody calls it e and this is great for identifying histidines, okay, over here. And indeed the one, two, three prominent lines and this sort of broad feature out there are characteristic of of histidine, so we know from these experiments that histidine is definitely coordinated. Another technique, and, and we send samples all over the country as well as doing experiments here, This is a technique called S-band. This is a low-frequency EPR. And you don't have to worry about what this spectrum means, but suffice to say that what you're looking at here, in in particular, in this little guy right there, is you're seeing little blips, okay? Little little features showing up, and those arise from the so-called coupled nitrogens. And the fact that we could see this gave us an idea. We said, okay, there's two different isotopes of nitrogen. Let's make a whole library of peptides, and in each member of the library will put a different isotope, these are not radioactive isotopes, these are stable isotopes, will put a different isotope at a unique position. And in doing so, we'll map out, we'll figure out which nitrogens are responsible for this so-called multiple structure. And these are the data, and don't worry about the interpretation, but this is the normal unlabeled. Here we see a difference in the shape of the spectrum. we now have a prominent peak in the middle, same way here, not there, not there, likewise over here. So what this tells us is that the first two glycines are coordinating. And so in summary for that part, we know that nitrogen is involved, we, those, we know those nitrogens are involved, and so we proposed back about four years ago now that this is what the copper binding site actually looks like. Fortunately, with other uh, wonderful colleagues here at Santa Cruz, namely Bill Scott and his students, and Alice Relink and her students, we were able to solve ultimately this, the crystal structure of this. So the EPR, so we go back and forth, right? Scientists always do this. So my crystallographic colleagues love to tell me that this is the most meaningful thing, okay? And what I always point out is we would have never known what to try to crystallize if it weren't for the EPR. So, you know, you need both, right? So the EPR narrowed us in on the relevant sequence, but getting the crystal structure was absolutely wonderful. And not only these little, uh, you know, sort of violet regions here are showing all the heavy atoms, the crystal structure is so good, we actually see the hydrogens as well, which is fairly rare. And so this shows in a little bit better detail, but basically what I showed you by EPR, some details we actually got wrong, uh, but the details that we could pick up by EPR, basically the histidine over here and the two glycines participating, we had absolutely right. So not only does it verify, but it also gives us good confidence in continuing with more complex things that do not crystallize, that the EPR methods that we've worked out uh, are working just great. So now, there's something very interesting here, and I'll touch back on this in a few minutes. But something is going on. Now, for those of you that are, that are polypeptide people and protein chemists, you're going to recognize that there's something odd here. Okay? Whenever proteins interact with metal ions, they do so through what's called their side chains. So this is the backbone here. Okay, This is the histidine side chain. And indeed, it's interacting with the copper. There's the copper, that guy right there. It's interacting through its side chain. The tryptophan up here. Here's the backbone. Here's the side chain. And it's interacting through its side chain. The glycines are interacting through their so-called main chain nitrogens. And this is unusual, it's not unprecedented, but it's unusual in biological proteins. And in fact, they have given up a proton, and that proton is now replaced with this copper, okay? And this tells us now, and I'll I'll get on this as we start summing things up, but this tells us an enormous amount about the possible chemistry. Okay, so with that said, and we, uh, we were able to carry on we now work with the full-length so-called recombinant protein, and we were able to find yet another binding site, but this is now the first model of the prion protein, and this is a very interesting blend of techniques here, okay? But this is the first view of the prion protein with its full complement of copper bound. So, it's, as I say, it's a real blend. So, number one, down here you've got the NMR structure for the globular domain. Here, well, actually here, 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 and here, we've got the crystal structure determined for the individual copper binding segments. And in between, we actually don't know how it's structured. So we guessed, okay? And in absence of any, you know, reasonable data, you always guess. You know, you make your, your best shot, okay? But we reason that it's fairly flexible, and so we built this model, and we still have much to figure out because we actually now believe that there's some uh, constri- con- contraction of this region where it actually packs together uh, in a way that could be very, very meaningful in terms of function. Now, if we put this, so this is by NMR, this is by EPR and crystallography, et cetera, and a little bit more in a three-dimensional sense... And this just sort of rotates back and forth and gives you a sense of what the prion protein looks like. But now we've sort of filled out space for all the atoms. And one of the things that I find kind of interesting, and I won't belabor the issue, is that these are the copper binding segments here. And you notice they're flat. They look like little Frisbees. Okay? And we think this actually might be relevant in terms of how PRP responds to copper load. And this is something we can talk about a little bit later if uh, if you folks are interested. So now, let me make a few points, if my computer will continue. Okay. All right, good. So this is just showing a little bit more detail. So as I mentioned, the prion protein is membrane-bound. So what we decided to do is take this a step further. So we actually got A model of a membrane run from some molecular dynamics simulations. These were performed at uh, University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. So, this is now a membrane. This is a prion protein. I told you it was membrane tethered, and the region that actually tethers to the membrane is the C terminus right here. And there's a GPI anchor, don't worry about the details, but that's submerged into this bilipid layer. Here's the prion protein, here's the copper binding site. So, the, the best that we know at this point globally, and this means from anybody's lab, this is what PRP, the prion protein, actually looks like when it's on the surface of a cell. Now, uh, I think it's fair, especially with the home crowd, to be honest. So I've shown you all these spectra that we can interpret, you know, very cleanly. And we know exactly which, what's coordinating here and there, and da-da-da-da-da, and we have crystal structures. So this is a spectrum. This is an EPR spectrum. And again, don't worry about the details. But we can interpret most of these lines. We know what's going on. This was obtained from, from spe- uh, some spectra from two octa-repeats linked together the other day. And we've been looking and looking and looking at this feature over here, and we have no idea what that thing is. Uh, And what's even worse, we don't even know if it's important, you know? So half the time we go into the lab, oh, and so we have a name for it, it's called, so it exists, this is magnetic field, so it's a high field, we call this technically the high field mystery peak, okay? And it shows up over and over and over again, sometimes reproducible, sometimes not, sometimes it depends on copper concentration, sometimes not, and... So we don't know if it's telling us something really, really important or if it's just some junk that always shows up in our tube, okay? So we're trying to figure this out. But to be honest, you know, this is, this is how science goes. Now, what I'd like to do is say a few things about what these copper sites are now telling us about prion biology. So what I'm showing you here is the octorepeat domain. This is the, the, the repeating segment. This is the structure that we've built showing the prion protein with all of its copper segments. And this, again, is the crystal structure showing what one of these individual segments looks like. Now, as I mentioned before, and I was, you know, touching on this and talking about how unusual this is, the copper bonds or binds to this region through these so-called deprotonated glycines, okay? It turns out that there's only one type of element, okay, one type of divalent that will do this at physiological pH, and it's copper, Okay, now one of the first things that was done with uh, when it was when it became clear that the prion protein bound to metal ions is, of course, many laboratories screened the prion protein against all sorts of different divalents: magnesium, nickel, cobalt, you name it. Okay, zinc. Okay, and it was found that it didn't bind to anything appreciably except for copper. This now tells us why. And I won't go into the the, the, the reasoning behind this, but it's actually fairly straightforward. It's actually Chem 1A type of material. So we can ask Catherine a little bit later (laughs) to go through this. But basically, there's a very, very strong affinity, a nice polarizability match between nitrogen and copper, and it's uniquely between those two species. So we can explain the copper selectivity. Um, Now, there are thousands of proteins now in the protein data bank, and there's many, many tens of thousands of protein sequences known in the protein sequence bank, okay? And proteins can be anywhere from 50 to hundreds and hundreds of amino acids long. Now if you think about that, there's only 20 amino acids, okay? The fact that any small repeating segment would be unique is, is unthinkable, okay? Well, what actually defines the copper binding segment, it turns out it's not only HGGGW, but this proline that comes in just before this. This proline, for reasons that I won't go into, punctuates, okay, it always in- introduces a kink. So it actually defines the binding site as PHGGGW, a little hexapeptide sequence. Believe it or not, in the entire protein sequence data bank with all the tens of thousands of sequences that are, th- th- that are there, this hexapeptide is found in only one protein and that is the prion protein. So this copper binding site is absolutely unique and does not show up in any other protein other than the prion protein. Now. This is a different site, I haven't talked about its chemistry and I won't unless anybody is interested, but this has slightly different chemical characteristics and it turns out it's very important. We think the first copper loads in there and it kind of facilitates copper binding throughout the rest of the protein. And so this is, as we say, it modulates the so-called cooperativity. Um, Now, as I mentioned back at the beginning, There's a vast literature suggesting that the prion protein has an enzyme function. It's a superoxide dismutase protecting us from an oxygen species called superoxide that often shows up in biological tissues. Well, in fact, based on the chemical structure that we have here, superoxide dismutase requires that the copper be able to take an electron up and release that electron back again, okay? This type of structure will not allow for that to happen. This, this binds only to copper two, not to copper one. Therefore, the prion protein cannot be a superoxide dismutase. We, once we determine the structure of this, we stated this in the literature, and fortunately now that, that other literature is coming to an end, and now recent works are indeed stating that there's no SOD uh, activity associated with PRP whatsoever. So we can rule that out. But what it does do, it binds copper really, really well. So what does the prion protein do? Um, truthfully, I wish I could tell you. Nobody really knows. Really, really neat study just came out. It was just published, and it's not even in normal journal form yet. It's still in so-called preprint form. This came out of Chris Volpe's lab at uh, UC Berkeley. They took some cells that are, in particular, sensitive to copper. And they treated them with copper, and they did gene arrays to find out which proteins uh, show a change in concentration, at least at the DNA level. And what they found, surprisingly, is that two proteins in particular were upregulated significantly. Number one, the Alzheimer's precursor protein, APP, which, when cleaved up, gives the A-beta peptide involved in Alzheimer's disease. And number two, the prion protein. So it appears that both of these proteins are somehow involved in protecting neurons and perhaps other tissues as well from copper insults. There is a whole bunch of data, and I'm not going to go through all the details, but there's a whole bunch of data uh, suggesting that this is the case. Um, When PRP is produced in cells, it increases the copper concentration at the cell membrane. It decreases copper toxicity. Cells that have the prion protein, that express the prion protein, are much more resistant to copper toxicity than normal cells. There was a study done with laboratory animals that were PRP knockouts, meaning that they lacked the ability to produce the prion protein. As they aged and were sacrificed and their tissues were examined, it was found that there was much more tissue damage due to oxidative processes in the body. There was more uh, lipid oxidation, protein oxidation, etc. So it appears that the prion protein has a subtle function. Okay. Animals can live without it. We don't know if humans can live without it, but animals, especially laboratory animals that have short lifetimes, they don't show very strong neurological manifestations of lacking the prion protein. But it appears over the long term, over which humans live, okay, and and hopefully, you know, animals living a favorable life in the wild live, that the prion protein plays a role in protecting nerves against possible insults from copper that normally exists in the brain. So one line of thought that came out in a very, very nice review by Vasalo and Herms, The prion protein, so where it's actually concentrated, and I didn't go into the details, but there's a region called a synapse where one neuron talks to another neuron, okay? And they release neurotransmitters, and this is how, you know, this one fires and gets this one, you know, to fire, et cetera. And the prion protein is concentrated at this so-called presynaptic region. It turns out for reasons that I don't understand and I don't know that it is understood, when there is this depolarization event, it actually releases a whole pulse of copper into this so-called presynaptic space. And so one line of thought is that the prion protein is poised in that region. So when this pulse of copper comes out, to render the copper so-called redox inactive and protect the cells against its redox chemistry, this is now beautifully positioned to take it all up in a highly cooperative fashion, grab it all up, render it redox inactive, and hold on to it until other proteins can come along and shuttle it back to where it belongs. But this is is probably the best theory right now, but nobody knows for sure. So if any of you are interested, let me just mention, and I'll put this up again at the end, at the very, very, very end. If any of you are interested in reading up any further on this, two books that I really highly recommend. One, if you definitely want to engage, prion diseases are sensationalized like crazy. There's nothing better than an infectious protein, okay, to get people stirred up. And, uh, and, of course, there are things that one worries about. Richard Rhodes' book, Rhodes, of course, one uh, uh, wrote The Making of the Atomic Bomb and won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, to be honest, this is not up to that caliber, but it's still a great book, okay? But it does sensationalize the field quite a bit, but it's a really good read, and if you really want to know the details of the mortuary feast, he does a great job describing this. This is much more current. This is by Philip Yam, much more detailed, much more scholarly in the way it approaches it. Um, it, it's, uh, it drags in a few places, but it has all the details and is very, very current up to about a year or two ago. And, you know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to do this because this is a very trivial piece of work relative to these. But if any of you are interested in the role of copper, this is an article. And actually, Joe Bennett is sitting in the audience here, so I should mention this is his journal. He founded this journal. When did you do this, Joe? In the 1970s? 66. This is now, Accounts of Chemical Research, I believe, is the most highly cited journal published by the American Chemical Society in terms of citations per paper. Joe Bennett of our faculty was actually the founding editor of this journal, and I was very excited uh, about a year ago to be invited to write one of their reviews, and so I covered, um, and you can see our molecule there, and I covered what is now currently known about copper binding. So with that said, there's our molecule, there's things we're working on, and we are particularly interested in the roles of metal ions in neurological disease. Nobody understands how Alzheimer's disease, the prion diseases, Parkinson's disease develop, and I believe what we're going to see, and and indeed this is now beginning to develop in a very significant way, I think metal ions are gonna play a very, very significant role. So finally, let me just uh, acknowledge who did the work. And uh, there's a whole bunch of people here, so I'll just say the other labs first. We collaborate with Stan Prusner's lab, at UCSF, Marilyn Olmsted at Davis, uh, Gary Gurfin, Eli Spencer was actually an undergraduate here who's now completing his MD-PhD at, uh, at Al- Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Bill Antheline at Medical College of Wisconsin. Colin Burns was the first to work on that. He's now a professor at East Carolina University. And in terms of current folks, Madri is, uh, is doing wonderful work identifying actually alternate binding modes. So what I told you is a very simplified version Uh, Eric Walter, who is also working on the kinetics and and other features, and the Highfield Mystery Peak, of course. Um, Bill Scott, another chemistry professor, Alice Freelink, likewise, helped with the crystallography. MICA is working on uh, what we hope will be very clever techniques to see if we can enhance our, our success with getting crystal structures. Uh, Dustin is looking at other metal ions and trying to figure out what's going on there. Catherine actually, so Dustin's an undergraduate. Katherine is actually a Cabrillo student who comes over and volunteers her time and is now helping us make peptides and do all sorts of wonderful things. Blanca is studying some chemical features, graduate student, a Mark student, of the uh, individual binding site. And Dan Stevens is also looking at the other binding site that we think is very, very important for modulating this. And so with that, I'll put up these uh, for, for reference if anybody is interested. And thank you very much for the kind invitation to come and talk and for your attention. Do we do questions? Yeah, I'll do questions. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. if
0: there's any sense
1: for to that well there is. There's many, many polymorphisms. Okay, and in fact one of the things I don't know if you if you picked it up on one of the early slides where I talked about variant CJD, there's actually outside of the octoropete domain, there's position one twenty nine can be either found the the um, uh, either as methionine or valine. And it turns out that all individuals that have gotten variant creutzfeldt jakob disease are all homozygous for methionine at that position. So there are many, many predisposing factors. There's actually another form of prion disease called fatal familia, familial insomnia, and it's horrible. It actually kills the center of the brain that controls sleep, and these people cannot sleep. And they just are tormented by this. And it arises from a point mutation in uh, what's called the hydrophobic region. It's actually between the globular domain and the copper binding domain, and it's a simple alanine to valine mutation and nothing more, and it greatly predisposes them. I think the penetrance is, is very high, like in a double-digit percentile. Now, as far as the repeats and the expansion of that region, we don't know if that's because it binds more copper or it doesn't take up copper. It is arrested from binding all the copper and contributes to the aggregation. We have no idea at this point.
0: Stores, um, the lights, like
1: it is, things? yes, good point, yeah. Copper is found both inside of the cell and outside of the cell. PRP is mainly outside of the cell, okay? Uh, inside the cell, P- copper is typically found as copper one, where it's a one electron reduction, and outside of the cell it's copper two. And uh, so we think what probably happens is when PRP binds up a copper, it sort of holds onto it, and then along comes a so-called reductase, that grabs the copper from there, doesn't want electron reduction to the best, and nobody's identified what this is, and that then is involved in transporting it back into the cell or transporting it somewhere else, but, but nobody really knows. But yes, copper is found, it's ubiquitous, it's found everywhere. Yeah? So then the
0: copper from the intracellular source shot into the synaptic.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Upon neuronal depolarization, it's exactly right. Copper from inside of the cell is released into the synapse to very high concentrations, I'll add, you know, up to, to two to 300 micromolar, which is very, very high, very cytotoxic if it's not complexed.
0: I just know that it's called a channel for fish pellets for fishes from the head and spinal cord, They on the muscle cut and stores. And do
1: you there can be another biological disease for fishes For fish? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Really?
0: Immediately I go through.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea, and I should know. I mean, PRP is always studied. It's all—it's found in all avian, you know, all birds, all mammals. But I know I'm not sure what the homologue in fish would be, or you know. Yeah, they, they issues, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh,
0: I must give